I'm going to be in Ezra chapter 8 this week, and next week we'll be finishing up Ezra. I also want to just mention uh, Nathan Beck will be here next Sunday at 9 a.m. if you want to hear about the work in Czech, as well as Ukrainian relief. They've been involved in some of that as well. So just keep those things in mind. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, so much for your goodness to us, and thank you for your word. Uh, as, as we think about the fact that you have given us this amazing tool that's so alive and, and so um, vast in so many ways, it touches on everything that we can imagine. And so, Lord, we're thankful for your word, and we ask that you would help us to understand your word and especially to apply it. We ask this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Many years ago, I was a short-term missionary in Quito, Ecuador for a short time. And at one point while I was down there, I met uh, um, um, a man, a young man, who was riding his bicycle from Alaska, northernmost point of Alaska, all the way down to the southernmost part of Chile. That was his his goal, and when he got to got to Quito, he, you know, had been on the road for five or six months already, and he probably had a lot more than that ahead of him. I never, I don't know if he ever made it or not. I, I'm assuming that he did because he seemed to be very driven. But I mention that because I remember thinking, "You've been riding a bike for six months. What are you, an idiot?" You know, I mean, he loved it, but I'm sitting there thinking, "That's nuts," you know. And and then I get to a passage like this, and I realize, let's go ahead and put that map up there, if you would. They're going to go from that little circle, Babylon, up and down into Jerusalem. Four months walking. 900 miles. So if you want to start in Topeka and start walking, you can get all the way to Pittsburgh. That's about 900 miles. That's, that's what you we're thinking through. So that's what's going on. And of course, it's, it's, um, it's one of those things that we have a hard time even capturing in our own minds what that would be like. You know, the start of Ezra's trip back to Jerusalem started in chapter 7 last week, uh, verse 28. Because the, the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Okay, so remember, chapter 7, it talks about how he got there and all that. And then there's this decree from the king to everybody. And then at the end of it, you realize that this was just kind of to let you know that, yeah, they, we did get there, but now let's go back to the beginning and show how, how that happened. And so that's where we're starting today. As he gets the word from the king and he starts gathering people and looking for people who want to go back to Israel with him. Um, there had already been a group of about 50,000, 60, uh, long before that, uh, almost 80, 90 years before that, they had gone back to Jerusalem and they went with Zerubbabel. Okay, that was chapters 1 through 6 of Ezra. Now we're 7 through 10, and these are the chapters that deal with Ezra himself. And he comes back, and it's a whole different process. And in this case, it's only going to be about four to 5,000 people that go back. So here's um, chapter 8, verse 1 says this. Here's a list of the family leaders and the genealogies of those who came with me from Babylon during the reign of King Artaxerxes. So I'm not going to go through and read all the names and who they're related to, but Ezra um, knew what was going on in the culture there, but also understood because he was a scribe and a priest what he needed to, to take care of when he went back. And so he's looking specifically for priests and Levites to go back and to be able to work in the temple. Um, 
total number of men eventually that ended up going was 1,772 if you add them all up. And with the women and children, probably somewhere between four, four to 5,000 were in this group that was going. Now, one thing that's really clear as you go down through here is that <clears throat> there's a whole bunch of families that are related to people who have already gone. And so some of them are obviously saying, okay, what's, well, they've survived so far. Maybe we can join them too. That's part of the, part of the process. And then there's names that are listed. A couple of the priests, um, obviously related to Aaron. And then some other, um, there's a man related to a descendant way down the line from King David. But more emphasis in this passage is placed on the priesthood and the Levites. And that's what he wants to do is take priests and Levites back with him. So in verse 15, he says, I assembled the exiles at Ahava Canal, and we camped there for three days. So he's gotten all the people, gathered all the people together, and he says, okay, we're going to take all our stuff, everything that's going back with us, and we're going to go to this side, this site outside of uh, Babylon, and we're going to gather together everything that we need to do and all the people. So he went over the lists of the people and the priests who had arrived, and he says, I found that no one, not one Levite, had volunteered to come along. Now, stop and think about that. You've got, in the, in the temple, there were priests who did the sacrifices and a number of other things. But then you had the Levites who did a lot of other things that made it easy, able for the priests to do their work. And so maybe the Levites had had, were sitting around in Babylon saying, you know what? This is a whole lot easier than going back to Jerusalem and working for the priests. I don't know if that's what they were thinking or not, but certainly a possibility going back there would mean a total different way of living for them. Uh, so that's a possibility. Uh, but Ezra was convinced that he needed Levites, and one of the reasons for that is they were going to become the scribes and the teachers down the road. And we're going to be the ones that are going to be communicating God's word. And, and uh, we see that when we get to Nehemiah 8, some of, the, some of the scribes were already involved. Some of the Levites were already involved. And in 16 through 20, Ezra sends the representatives to look for Levites. And he sends them to some communities where they are. And eventually, a, a lot of them do come and uh, join, join the group as they're getting ready to go. Let's jump forward to verse 21. And there by the Hava Canal, I gave orders for all of us to fast and humble ourselves before God. Um, we prayed that He would give us a safe journey and protect us, our children, and our goods as we traveled. So, you know, here they are. They're getting ready. And they, he says, let's, let's do a fast. We're going to fast so that we can come before God and, and ask God to help us, keep us safe. Uh, this is a long journey, and there were all kinds of ways they could get into trouble. Um, Anyway, so verse 22 is one of those interesting verses. He said, I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to accompany us. Anything he'd asked for, he'd gotten. Okay? So he didn't ask, and he tells us why. Um, I was ashamed uh, to ask for them to accompany us. After all, we had told the king, our God, our God's hand of protection is on all who worship him but his fierce anger rages against those who abandon him. So we don't need the, we don't need the help. We're going to trust God on this thing. And uh, I think it gets down to the point where they're getting ready to leave, and, and uh, Ezra says, okay, let's fast. <laughs> let's fast and pray. Let's, let's get God to, to be with us on this pro- project. So they fasted and earnestly prayed that God would take care of them and that he would listen to their prayers. Um, 
Let's go ahead and put that slide up there, Keaton. Um, so this is what they did. They, they fasted and humbled themselves before God. Without God, they knew they were sunk. They knew that without God, they weren't going to be able to bring all of the valuable treasure with them. Um, and they are asking for that safe journey. Um, <clears throat> it's interesting to me that as they're praying and as they're seeking God in this situation, it's forcing them to say, if God is not with us, then we can't make it. If God is not with us, the trip doesn't even matter. And so that's kind of what's going on here. And on one level, uh, because he said, you know, well, our God can take care of us, he was forced along with everybody else to say, okay, God, now you need to take care of us. It's, it's a real interesting play on words and things that happen there. You don't expect him to step up and say, this is how I blew it, if you will. Anyway, so that's what he's saying. Um, <clears throat> So they fasted earnestly, they prayed, they looked to God for His intervention, um, and after the time of fasting and praying, um, they, you know, got on, got, got going with the trip. Um, just by way of implication here, to me it's interesting that they were seeking God, looking to Him, petitioning Him, fasting, and, and, um, the two verses that, in two of the translations that came out, we fasted and pleaded with God, or we fasted earnestly and um, prayed. So those things were going together. The, the fasting was something they were not eating, and they were taking time instead of eating to pray and bring these things before God and lay them out. Um, and they went together. They're praying and they're fasting. It's interesting when you think about fasting, and um, it's one of those things that in our time frame, it's not often something that we talk about or even do, um, at least not in, in the religious sense. I think people that fast for all kinds of other reasons, but strictly speaking, to, in, in the way of following the Lord. And so I was thinking that through this week and thinking, okay, so where are some examples of fasting uh, in the New Testament? Well, <clears throat> Jesus... Um, told the people in his time frame that when you fast, and he gave them directions about how to fast. Or when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites who want everybody to know that they're fasting, and so they they don't take a bath and they walk around and they they just are gaunt and and uh, so they really are making a show of the fact that they're fasting. Jesus, that's not the way to fast. Don't do it that way. Um, then another time in in Mark, he says. Um, they will fast. And he's talking about the bridegroom and, and everything at, and this uh, wedding that they're at. And people were asking about fasting. He said, listen, while the bridegroom's here, and in this case he's referring to himself, that's not the time to fast. But when the bridegroom's gone, then that's the time that you should be thinking about fasting. In Acts, the church was worshiping and fasting. And this was very early. And uh, they were trying to figure out what to do. And it's during the time when they were worshiping and fasting in Antioch that God spoke and said, set aside Barnabas and and Paul for me. I've got a special mission call for them. So um, Paul and Barnabas are coming back, visiting all the places that they had stopped at, and they fasted and prayed and appointed elders. So those are just some some examples. Um, Came across this definition that I thought was really good. When we fast, we are saying to God, that he is more important to us than food. Okay. Now, 
I'm not up here to say, okay, we're going to declare, you know, three-day fast or anything. I, I, I really do think that fasting can, it can be one of those disciplines that's good for us, but I think it's an individual thing, unless the church decides to do something corporately. But, but that's not normally what happens in, in our time frame. Um, the point of fasting should be Jesus. The point of fasting is my relationship with Him. Uh, not fasting to try to force God to do something. So I need God to come through in this way, so I'm going to fast. And I'm going to fast until He does it. Eh, that's not what fasting is about. Fasting is about drawing near to Him and putting our focus on Him. Um, it's about seeking and pursuing the Lord in some special way. So is is fasting always just about food? That's another thing. Now, scriptures mostly it's about food. Um, at one point, Jesus fasted for 40 days. Moses fasted from food and drink for 40 days. That's called a supernatural fast. He was in God's presence on Mount Sinai during that whole 40 days. Um, Rich Daniel had a, a, a three-week fast. He was almost in mourning, but the way he described it is he didn't eat any rich foods. And in his description of that was no... Um, he didn't eat any meat, and he didn't eat any of the other fancy things, and he didn't use any oils or lotions, which apparently was something you did in that climate and in that culture. And so Daniel abstained from those things for those three, three weeks so that he could mourn and pray and approach God in a special way. Um, just mentioning some things as, as we go along here. I sometimes... When I, when I want to fast, and I don't, again, I don't talk about it much. I don't even tell people most of the time. But when I'm going to fast for some reason, um, maybe it's something that's on my mind. Maybe it's someone that is on my mind and on my heart. Many times what I'll do is I'll stop eating after lunch and then skip supper, snacks, everything else, skip breakfast. And, the, and then at the next lunch, I would go back to start eating. Or, and for me, that just works out. It's a 24-hour period of time, but it works out better to finish for me in that way and to start the other way. So that's one way that, that I've done it. Um, I have a friend, and this goes back to, is it just about food? I have a friend who fasts regularly from all media. He basically says, I'm taking a week, I'm not watching TV, I'm not doing video games, I'm not doing any live streaming of any kind, and so he just, that's it, I'm not going to do it. Um, I've heard of people saying, you know, I'm going to fast from this phone that seems to be attached to me, except for phone calls that I absolutely have to make. Um, that's certainly something. How about fasting from Facebook or TikTok or Instagram or keep on going, whatever you want to do there. Um, when we fast from any of those kinds of things, I think what we're saying at that point is that God is more important to me than my phone or than my TV series that I've been watching or than this other, and whatever it is. God's more important to me than that. And so on one level, I, I, that's a kind of challenge I'd love to leave with you. You have to do it, do it for a week, do it for a couple of days. Say, okay, I'm not going to do this. Most, most of us, if we're honest, will say we probably spend way too much time looking down at what's in our palm. Because there's so much that you can do with that now. And I understand that. If we have some people that we really care about, and we long to see God do something in their lives, maybe they're 
relatives that, that don't know the Lord we've been praying for. Or maybe it's someone who's drifted a long ways away from the Lord. Those are times where we can say, okay, I'm going to fast for this situation. And I'm going to come before God. And, and, and in my case, when I've done that, it's been, it's been to do the you know, time without food. And every time I get hungry or think about food, I pray for the person that I'm bringing before the Lord. That's just my way of doing it. I'm not telling everybody that's how you should do it. But there's a reason why fasting is in the Scriptures. Okay? And so one of those things is to just kind of think through. Why fast? Make my time to seek to, to make time to seek to grow in my relationship with the Lord. That's one thing I could do while I'm fasting. Why fast? Well, I can focus on prayer for someone in need, for an unsaved person, someone who's wandering from the Lord. Why fast? As a simple reminder that God is more important than fill in the blank. So I'm fasting from this because I want to really say it and mean it. God's more important to me than that. And that's something that we can think through. Um, guidelines, just real quickly. If you're going to go and fast without, go without food, please be careful medically if that's something that you can actually do. Uh, some people, if they are hypoglycemic or have diabetes and they try to fast, can be a really dangerous situation. Um, second thing, if you're doing some kind of fast, keep it between you and God. That's, that's what it's all about. Um, start small. Maybe just skip one meal or maybe uh, half a day. Uh, start small and then ask God to work in your life as you do this to, to help you desire Him more and more. And, and, and let me just put it this way. Pray and ask God if He wants you to be involved in some of the fasting that we've just talked about. And if He does, then you follow up on that with him, but I, I find it fascinating. And here they are, ready to go. And the first thing they do is they fast because they said, "You know what? We need all the help we can get." So, Lord God, we're focusing on you. We're asking for your help because without you, we will not make it. We won't make it across the desert, ninety nine hundred miles, trying to take all this stuff with us. <clears throat> Let's jump into verse twenty four. Uh, I appointed twelve leaders of the priests. Uh, Sherebi, Hashbi, and ten others to be in charge of transporting the silver, the gold, the gold bowls, and the other items that the king and the council, his officials, and all of the people of Israel had presented for the temple of God. So uh, it's, there, it's there in your notes, the total weight, 24 and a half tons of gold, of silver, sorry, three and three quarter tons of silver objects, Three and three quarter tons of gold, and then twenty gold bowls and two items of brass that were or bronze that were significantly uh, valuable. <clears throat> and so um, he weighs out these the amounts, and he says to them, "You guys are in charge of taking these." Things. I'm going to go ahead and put this up there. I I thought, how in the world do you transport twenty four tons of silver? Um, probably like this. As near as I can understand, as I went ahead and did some, some research on this kind of thing, camels can carry up to 900 pounds. Now, probably back in that time frame, they just loaded on more. So you'd need two camels per ton, basically. And I'll let you do the math from there, as far as I could go. <clears throat> anyway, the, another way would be uh, donkeys, but I think you'd need way too many donkeys I would imagine, and again, this is me speculating. Please, please understand that. 
Uh, I would imagine that with the gift of all of these things, maybe the king also gave camels in order to get it all there because 5,000 people aren't carrying 24 tons of silver. That's not going to happen. You know, so as I was thinking all through that, I thought, okay, so that, that's, that's probably what, what's going on here. So remember, and you can just go to the next slide, Keaton. Thanks. <clears throat> remember, they're walking for four months. For four months, they're walking. Now, imagine that. Um, and imagine these guys that were given, okay, you've got this amount, of, this amount of the silver, you've got to watch over. You've got this number, amount of gold. And so he took all of these tons of things and turned it over to people. He weighed it out and wrote it down. So they were responsible for this amount of weight of gold. Now, so these guys, I mean, their primary duty is to keep watch over this. And so that's going to mean that they load the camels in the morning and in the evening they have to unload the camels. And that's going on for four months, loading and unloading. Imagine traveling in this kind of a caravan, 5,000 people and however many animals they've got, and, and having to stop at every water hole because, you know, you can't carry water for all of this. And so again, you're, you're thinking through, this is a massive undertaking. This is huge to take all this stuff back. Um, <clears throat> verse 28. And I said to these priests, you are, you and these treasures have been set apart as holy by the Lord. This silver and gold is a voluntary offering to the Lord God of our ancestors. Guard these treasures well. And again, so now why did they fast and pray? Because they had 24 tons of silver and nobody to guard it except God. And that's why they fasted and said, Lord God, if we don't have you working in us, if you don't have you working in this situation, protecting us, we're not going to get these gifts to the temple in any way. You're going to have to come through on that. And of course, God did. Um, After four months, verse 33, on the fourth day after our arrival, So they arrived in Jerusalem and they just kind of apparently just took three or four days and just rested. Uh, And then on the fourth day of our arrival, the silver and gold and all the other valuables were weighed at the temple of God. So remember, Ezra's a scribe. He's got all the lists of who got how much and how much it weighed and all that. And so now they go to the temple and the guys bring their load of whatever it is. And Ezra checks it and makes sure that, yep, it's the same amount. And then they... Give it to the priests there in um, in Jerusalem. It's interesting. Verse 34 says, Everything was accounted for by number and weight, and the total weight was officially recorded. Now, I don't have a verse for this, but my guess with Ezra is that a copy of that final you know, ledger was sent back to Babylon to the king of Persia to say, Thank you for all these gifts, and this is to let you know we arrived, and it's all been given to the temple and the people at the temple. Um, what an incredible thing. I mean, think about what's going on with this. Um, it's by way of implication. We already mentioned it's four months, 900 miles. Uh, if I'm pretty sure most of them were walking because they needed all the animals they could to carry all that, all that gold and silver. And so they, they're doing this. And now they arrive in Jerusalem and all the gold and silver is counted, weighed, and recorded in the presence of, this is the other thing I didn't mention, many witnesses. 
Okay, so a bunch of people who brought it are there, and a bunch of the priests and Levites that are in Jerusalem are there, and this transaction takes place publicly, so that as they take it and put it into the temple, it's recorded, and everybody knows that it's been there. So um, verse 34 again says, Everything was verified by number and weight, and the total weight was recorded at that time. Um, it was all there. Imagine that. Every single ounce, nothing was missing. Why? Well, Ezra expected these men, and he picked these men because he expected them to be honest men of integrity. These guys were going to be trusted with, in today's world, millions of dollars worth of silver and gold. Um, and it just struck me. It, it, there didn't seem to be a whole lot of you know, he said, okay, you're, I'm trusting you to do this. And then they took off on their journey and none of it was missing. Of course not. These men were men of integrity and they were honest and they, they served God. Um, <clears throat> Paul gave instructions about elders and deacons, didn't he? First Timothy 2, 3, 2 and 3. An overseer um, or an elder, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and this next one especially, not greedy. Now, there's other characteristics as well. But I, I just was going through that thinking, okay, if, if Paul was saying, I'm looking for someone to be an elder, um, these are the kinds of things I, I want to see in an elder. And, and, and it's things about honesty and integrity. It's, it's above reproach. It's uh, not somebody who's an angry bully. It's not someone who's going to be quarrelsome. And it's not someone who is greedy. In the church in the United States, America, in the last 20 years, there have been so many horrendous things that have happened. And a lot of it had to do with money in churches. Churches closing down, churches, um, you know, someone embezzling millions of dollars from churches. And you sit back and you say, how, how do we let that happen? Deacons in First Timothy 3.8, likewise are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. Again, that whole element of, of finances is there. Um, so why, why did Paul make such a big deal about the not greedy or not being dishonest? Because the love of money is the root of all evil. The Lord Jesus told us that. Um, the love of money can ruin anyone and it can destroy a church. Totally destroy a church. Um, one of the biggest reasons I was reading an article from Christianity Today one of the biggest reasons that churches cease to function, go out of business, however you want to put it, in our time frame now, is finances. Either they're misused or they're so far in debt they can't keep the doors open. Uh, just it's it's incredible. I was one of the one of the examples that that I came across was a there was a, a, a church that was getting started in this town and and they're outgrowing their present facility, so they wanted to rent from a, like a warehouse that had a bunch of different spaces in it. And they, they tried to, to rent and they wouldn't rent to them and wouldn't rent to them and they couldn't figure out why. And finally, um, the, the guy that was trying to do this, the pastor talked to the 
secretary when he saw her somewhere else, and she, and she said, they're not going to rent to you. And he said, why? Because the last four churches that had space there didn't pay on time and left them with debt that they didn't pay when they walked out the door. That's terrible. But that sort of thing happens. And, and that's why Paul is saying, hey, this is really, really important. Church finances are something that um, you, if you're not transparent about it, then, then there's going to be some dangerous things happen. In our own town, a number of years ago, a really big megachurch went out of business because of the way they were using their funds. And they had to shut the door. Now, just, <clears throat> just to kind of share a little bit, most of you probably know this, but our practice here is that no one counts money alone. Okay, so there's never one person counting money. It's always to the deacons. And then it is double-checked afterwards by the treasurer. That's just part of our process. Um, Financial reports are available each month and then at the end of each year as well, which will give you the details. This is how much came in, this is where it went, and this is how much we still have. Um, One of the things that has always been my practice is that I never am anywhere near the money. I don't want to be by the offerings. I don't want to be where people are counting it. I don't want to be doing anything at all. That's that's in other people's hands. I don't want anybody to ever say, well, you know what? Mark's counting the money, and we're $100 short. This is not going to happen because I I won't be involved in that. This is my personal personal uh, preference, but that's why I do it. So those are just some things. And then it's interesting because when this building up here wasn't finished, When Carol and I first came 15 years ago, it wasn't done. But within that first year, year and a half, the city came along and said, you either finish it or you're going to get new codes that you have to work on. And that would mean a whole lot more money. And so, you know, we had a very large mortgage at the time. We were paying it okay, but it was large. So we decided we can't put more on the mortgage. And so that's when we talked and prayed. And as a church family, we all got together. And then we, we did something that we called Faith Promises. And that was where we would say, okay, if, if at all possible, above and beyond my normal giving, I'm going to give this amount for the finishing of that upstairs section of the church. And I think it was around 100000 that we needed. And all of those things were promised. And we finished this building without taking on any more debt. Now that's, I'm saying that not because we're great, but because that's, smart and it's common sense and i think that's really something that that we need to be aware of as a church family Uh, we don't want to be in debt we want to be able to to use the facility for god's glory we want to be able to send people onto the mission field and support them all of those things and if our debt gets bigger and bigger and bigger that disappears okay so just so, so that you all know that's kind of the situation and so, for me, one of the fun things since since we came has been working with a number of the the guys that are elders and deacons, and just <clears throat> seeing that um, there's nobody perfect, me especially. But in all of our times together, there's a sense of we are doing this for God. It's not about becoming more important. It's not about Anything else other than that, this needs to happen. These things need to happen. Elders are doing these things. Deacons are doing these things. We meet together and we pray for the church family. Why? Because I think that's what God calls us to do. 
anyway, Ezra showed the way, picked men of integrity, men who were able to do what they needed to do, honestly, and every ounce of gold and silver showed up where it was supposed to. Verse 35, the last section of this chapter. Then the exiles who had come out of captivity sacrificed burnt offerings to the God of Israel. And they presented 12 bulls for all of the people of Israel, so one for each tribe, even though there were only two and a half tribes left. Now all the others have disappeared totally. Um, and so they did that as kind of a, a an offering that would bring them back into fellowship with God. That was what the 12... Um, bulls were about, and then they offered uh, 96 rams and 77 male lambs, and that was fellowship offerings, so they were taking part of the meal in that process. And then they also offered 12 male goats as sin offerings. Once again, one per tribe is what they were doing there. So in each case, a person would come, lay their hands on the goat, and he's from the tribe of Benjamin. He's, you know, doing that. And so he lays his hands on the goat, the goat is executed, um, they catch the blood, they put some in front of the tent, uh, the inner, in front of the veil uh, in the temple, uh, separating the holy place from the holy of holies, and then they put some on the incense altar, and then the rest is poured out at the base of the altar. For all 12 tribes, they did a sin offering. And then verse 36 All this has taken place, and now they're settling into Jerusalem, all of them. And in verse 36, the king's decrees were delivered, and this is Ezra taking the king's decrees, uh, to the highest officers and the governors of the province west of the Euphrates, which is all of Israel and and, uh, some some of the other parts all around them as well. So he takes these things, and, and that's that letter that we read in the chapter last week. That's what he's taking. And then he takes it to these guys, and it's interesting, the result of him taking the letter to these people was that they then helped to support the temple and the people. So the governors of Trans-Euphrates and, and others um, saw the king's letter, they saw what Ezra had done, and they took part in presenting some of those things <clears throat> to them. So what do, we, what do we take away from this? In verse 2, Ezra gathered everyone by the Ahava Canal. They proclaimed a fast, and we already talked about that. Why? Well, so they could be humbled and themselves before God, so that they could ask God for a safe journey, all of the families and all. And and, and verse 22, um, thanks. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from the enemies of on the road. Why? Well, he tells us, because we had told the king... The gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to Him. This is uh, the NIV translation. I, I love the way they translate it. There's different ways of, of translating it. The whole idea is to be seeking God and seeking His help. But I love the way they put it with looks to God, looks to Him. And so, on one level, He's saying, you know what? You know, we could use the soldiers and we could use the cavalry, whatever, but we're going to look to our God to do that. We're going to look to Him. And I started thinking about that. Um, do we ever look to God in that same way? And do we look to God to protect and guide us like, like they did? Um, do we really believe that God is with us? That He cares for us? That His hand is on us? 
um, they were turning to God and looking to God to help with very specific protection. And, um, and, and they, they knew if God didn't come through, there's no way that all that donation would make it to Jerusalem. And so I was thinking about that. Where do we turn for help? What, what do we do when we look to God? And, and, and I was asking myself those questions as I was going through. Am I, am I looking to myself? Do I really think I can pull any of this stuff off by myself if I just work harder and, and do a little bit longer? And can, can I really do that? Or do I, do I look to, look to God or, or do I look to keeping the rules? I'm, I'm going to keep the rules even better. I'm going to be even better and more obedient and, and I'm just going to do that. Um, or are we just saying, you know what, I'm, I'm going to let someone else do the look into God part and I'm just going to, you know, just go my merry way. Where do we turn to for help? I just was thinking this through in the sense of looking to God. Where do we turn for help? Where do we look to help? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. So how, how do we do that? How do we lay aside the weight? How do we, you know, lay aside the sin that clings to us? How do we, how do we run with endurance? Verse 2 says, we do it looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How do we lay aside every weight? How do we lay aside the sin which clings to us? How do we run with endurance the race God has laid out for us? Well, we do it looking to Jesus. We look to Him. We trust Him. We seek His help, His strength. We keep our eyes fixed never losing sight of Him. He's the one we follow. In the minute we lose sight, it isn't because Jesus has taken a turn somewhere. It's maybe because we haven't been following or watching as closely as we should. So we look to Him. Lilius Trotter was a, uh, an English woman who was born to a very, very wealthy family. Um, she was an only child. And so she was raised in, in, in luxury. She, anything she wanted, she could do, she could have, uh, never wanted for anything. And, and in the process of her growing years, had become a very good artist. And several people had said, you know, you need to pursue this as a career because you're going to be amazing. We see all that talent there. Um, but she was a believer and she started doing things like going down at night to the docks and trying to talk to the prostitutes that were down there to try and encourage them to come to Christ. That was, <clears throat> that was one of the things that she started with. Eventually, both her mother and father passed away, and um, she wanted to go to Algeria, and so she applied to all kinds of mission agencies, and nobody would take her. Nobody wanted to have Lilius Trotter in their mission, so she decided that she would just liquidate all of the assets and her inheritance and go go anyway. And so in 1888, she left for North Africa and spent the remaining 40 years of her life working among Arab Muslims in Algeria. 
You can get um, copies of her. She's got a couple of books that were, have been printed. Some of them have her artwork that's absolutely beautiful. But one of the things that she did was she she was a really good linguist and was able to understand, learn to read and write several languages. So she would write, handwrite many of these little pamphlets and stuff and, and then put her drawings all through them. And, and she would give those away. And they were valued and people liked the art and they liked the things that she had to say. So she had an incredible ministry doing that. Um, she wrote something called Focus, and, and it's a very long thing. I'm just giving you the last little section of it, and you'll see where that ties in a minute. But she said, Turn full your soul's vision to Jesus and look and look at him. And a strange dimness will come over all that is apart from him. And the divine shaping by which God's saints are made, even in this 20th century, will lay hold of you. For he is worthy to have all there is to be had in the heart that he has died to win. Incredible. There was a woman named Helen Lamell who heard that last part and in her mind started to compose the song that we know as Turn Your Eyes on Jesus. Uh, it's very possible uh, that uh, she, she went blind as, as, an, as an adult. And it's possible, I, I couldn't get exact dates on this kind of stuff, that she was already blind when she wrote, Turn Your Eyes on Jesus. And she wrote it after having heard about Lilius Trotter and all the things that she had lived and gone through. And, and she was so impressed that like I said she, she said that when she wrote it, it was like it just clicked inside of her head and she just had to write it down. It was done already because that was such a powerful <clears throat> story of, the, of Lilius Trotter. And so as I was thinking through the whole idea of looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus for His help, looking to Jesus for His strength, staying focused and running the race with our eyes fixed on Him. That song just really came to mind. I'm going to have Daniel come up and we'll sing it as we close this morning. But the verses, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. Ever been there? Ever gone through something when you, all it was was darkness? There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. So when everything seems dark and bleak and overwhelming, those are the times that we turn we turn and we look to him with even more anticipation. Turn your eyes on Jesus. Look in his full and wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Whatever things we're going through in this next week, let's continue to look to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, thank You so much for Your Word and thank You for Your people. Started today with Ezra and the people who 
carried all that treasure across the desert. Lord, thank you for the men and women in this room here. And Lord, I pray that you'd help each of us in, in those bleak and dark moments that we all have at times to stop and look to you. And we ask for your strength and your grace in each setting and in each situation. We ask it in your name. Amen.